Thanks, guys. Well, good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Thanks for coming this morning. My name is Peter Carlson. I am the worship leader here, and I'm also one of the overseers, and uh, we get opportunity to preach every now and then. So uh, I'm going to be preaching today, and uh, I'm really happy about it. I really like this passage uh, that we're going to look at today uh, in the book of Acts. Um, we've been in this sermon series in the book of Acts for quite a while, almost, almost a year, um, almost a year exactly, and um, it's been great. We've, uh, we've seen a lot in, uh, in this story, and I was actually talking to my mom yesterday and uh, told her I was preaching today on the book of Acts, and she said that when people tell her, I want to read the Bible with my kids, what's like an exciting book that would like sort of draw them in? And she said, you should probably do Acts. There's a lot of uh, really cool stuff and a lot of movement and going from place to place and uh, danger and everything, and that's, that's true. Um, and it's also broken up by a whole bunch of like really long sermons, so kids love that too, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, but it's, it, it is true that it's an exciting book, and we have a, we have a pretty exciting uh, passage today, actually. Um, but to set it up, before we get there, we've been following the journeys and the ministry uh, of this guy named Paul, and he's been journeying all over the, the ancient world around the Mediterranean Sea, planting churches, preaching to Jews, preaching to Gentiles, making new believers, um, and having a whole bunch of adventures. And now, uh, he's made his way back to, to sort of the main area of Israel and Judea to Jerusalem. And he's, he's compelled to go there. <clears throat> and as he's making known his plans that he wants to go to Jerusalem and preach, a lot of his companions and the people that he talks to along the way are like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Definitely don't go to Jerusalem. Bad idea. Um, they're very angry with you there, and that's where the leaders are, and they'll probably try to have you killed if you show up there. Um, but Paul says, I'm, I'm still going to go. And over the last few weeks, we've kind of been noticing that his journey to Jerusalem is kind of a, an interesting mirror of Jesus going to Jerusalem. So Jesus made his way uh, to Jerusalem as well, where he was crucified in Jerusalem. And Maybe Paul is aware of this, maybe he's not, but it does seem clear at different points along that story that um, he does think maybe he is going to die there and that he's okay with that. And sure enough, soon after he gets there, um, he's preaching and a huge riot breaks out and they try to kill him right then and there and they, they have to like get him away, get him away. The, the Romans show up and they grab him and they basically arrest him just to get him out of there and, and save his life. Um, because remember, the Romans, the Romans' job at this point in this area is to keep the peace. So the Roman Empire is you know, spreading throughout this ancient world. And essentially how they do it is they show up in an area and say, hi, we're the Romans and we're in charge now. You're going to become a new like, franchise of the Roman Empire and we're just going to keep everything calm and cool here. And if you try to rise up, we're just going to strike it down because we're bigger and better than you and more powerful. So don't do it. So they're, they're in Jerusalem. They don't like riots. That's the worst. And especially, they don't like um, hearing that a Roman citizen is going to get killed by, by this sort of rabble of Jews. So they get Paul out of there, and they, they put him in, in jail, basically, to protect him for his own protection, and so that he doesn't get torn limb from limb, as it, as it said last week. So, while he's in jail, he has a vision of Jesus. So Jesus appears to him, and at the very end of last week's passage, Jesus shows up and says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
So up until this point, Paul is convinced that he's going to get killed in Jerusalem. But it's at this point that things change because now that Jesus says you're not going to die in Jerusalem, you are going to go to Rome, suddenly Paul has something called plot armor. Have you heard of this term plot armor before? If it's new to you, this is kind of a, you know, like a TV or a movie trope that says um, we've got a main character, a lot of stuff's going to happen, but this character needs to survive to the end of the story because he or she is the main character. That's, that's the only reason that has to happen. So essentially they're protected from whatever it is that's going to happen uh, throughout the course of this story. So until Paul gets to Rome, he's essentially unkillable because Jesus has said, you're going to go to Rome. Uh, Paul has plot armor. So um, how many times in, in a movie or a TV show have you seen like some sort of like giant battle scene or something in, in act two of the movie and somehow the hero like stumbles out like, whoa, wow, I can't believe I survived that. You're like, yeah, I can't believe you survived that. You, you think about like all the James Bond movies, right? Where James Bond is like, he jumps out of a helicopter, he lands on a pair of skis and he gets away. You're just like, really though? How? How, is he not, how does he have, not have a broken ankle or something? Or maybe a more modern example would be like Ethan Hunt from the Mission Impossible movies. Like, the guy's hanging off an airplane as it takes off, but he's, he's strong enough to hang on and like get in and beat up the guys. Or like a huge car crash and he like stumbles out and then like sprints away and you're like, no, 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 no. But it's because he's the main character. Or how about, how about Star Trek, right? The original Star Trek series. And you're like, it's a really dangerous situation on the planet. We're going to need Kirk, Spock, Dr. McCoy, and Ensign Flenderson to beam down to the planet to this really dangerous situation. And you're like, wonder who's going to not make it back. It's going to be Ensign Flenderson because he doesn't matter to this. Um, so... Or the wet bandits in Home Alone. How are they alive? They just need to be there at the end. That's the thing. That's the point. So the writers are making sure that their, their main character gets to the end and fulfills whatever the arc or the mission uh, is. And so there's this concept of like they've got plot armor. They're just, it's not going to happen. They're not going to get killed. Um, now some of you are going to say like, well, I've seen movies where the main character gets killed early on. Like, what about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, one of my favorite movies, where the main character gets killed like 20 minutes in, and you're like, what is happening? But then, see, the twist is that wasn't the main character. You got tricked. The main character comes later. So even then, like, you might get disoriented for a while, but there's still a point. There's still a story that's being written, and the hero or main character just needs to be at the end. They need to fulfill whatever the goal. Now, that doesn't happen in real life though like there's no real plot armor that you can go buy and put on and like ha I got the plot armor nothing can happen to me um that's not that's not real but the bible is a real story this really did happen to Paul and Paul really is going to get plot armor here because Jesus says he's going to go to Rome it's going to happen so we're going to talk today about this story that is real it really did happen and how the writer of this story the writer of the story of the universe is going to use this story to teach us about himself, what he's like, how he interacts with us, some things about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus uh, has done for us. So we're going to continue on with Paul's story and see how this all plays out because it's going to be really, really kind of cool and exciting what happens to him next. So our main passage, Acts 23, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 35. When it was day, so the next day after... He sees Jesus. The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, that's the Roman tribune, to bring Paul down to you as though you were going to determine his case more closely and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, that's the tribune, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there, was, there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Super cool episode of Acts, you guys. There's a lot of cool stuff in here. I mean, you've got a secret league of Jewish assassins. All right, right there, that script goes straight to, straight to production, right? Secret league of Jewish assassins. You've got a plot to kill Paul in the streets. You've got a young witness who tips off the authorities. You've got this secret nighttime escape under armed guard. It's, it's really cool, like action and intrigue and, and really good stuff. We're going we're gonna to take this story, we're going to unpack it in three different ways. We're going to see what God is telling us about the gospel of Jesus Christ using the events of this story that, that he himself is writing to tell us something about himself. We're going to learn um, a lot about who God is and how he operates. So let's start from the top. Let's start talking about this, this league of Jewish assassins. Okay? So they're, they're making a vow. Okay? These are religious extremists. They've decided that this Roman justice system that's in charge is just not working fast enough. Or maybe they're just not even going to do the job because of this citizenship thing. So they get together, they make this plot, 
and they make an oath, seal it with like this solemn oath, this promise that we're going to kill Paul and we're not going to eat or drink again until this is done. We're going to get this thing done. So they, hopefully, the plan was complete because, you know, no food or drink until it's done. You know, it's probably going to be in the next day or two. Not only that, they decide that they are going to recruit like the leaders of the Jewish people, this chief priests, these elders, they're going to recruit them to be accomplices in this plot by having them call for Paul from prison under these false pretenses. Like, we just got to ask him like a few more questions to really get to the bottom of it. And apparently the plan is for them to sort of be in the streets, in the crowds, and as this, they're bringing Paul through, enough of them can get through the soldiers to just kill him, kill him in the street. A murder, right? And the religious leaders agreed to it because the story is that he brings is like, they're going to do it. The leaders have agreed. So in the heads, in the minds of these Jewish assassins, which I just love to say Jewish assassins, like that, that's pretty cool that that's in there. There's this secret Jewish assassins, a cabal, a conspiracy. It's great. Um, in their minds, in their heads, they really believe that they're doing the righteous thing. They do. They're, they're saying we need to eliminate this heretic who's preaching against the law, against the Old Testament, and telling us that Jesus is the Son of God and we need to believe in him and we don't have to follow the laws anymore. That's heresy. He's leading people away from God, they say. But not only that, they don't trust that God will deal with it. They don't trust that God is in control of the situation. They think that they need to be the ones to take care of this problem that they see. So without this wild vow of fasting and lying and killing, some, you know, something bad's going to happen and God's not going to be able to take care of it. And I mean, the reality is they couldn't have been more wrong about this, right? They're, they're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from what the plan of God is and what's really going on theologically at this time. But really, maybe, most dangerously of all, this intent of theirs to lie, to coerce, ultimately to commit murder, they wrap it up in this solemn vow and in fasting. It's, it's displays of religious piety that they wrap this up. They, they're fully aware that they're, the, law, the law that they're following says don't kill people. They're planning to kill someone and then they're saying it's, it's with this solemn vow and fasting and all of, this, all of this stuff, these displays of outward righteousness, these displays of keeping the law. That's how they choose to wrap it up and make this solemn vow to break the law in these brazen ways. So Jesus talks about the concept of vows in general. He's not a big fan. Not a big fan at all. This is from Matthew 5.33. Jesus is talking and he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head. Apparently that was a common thing for someone to do. I swear by my head. Don't, don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So he's saying, hey, the, the law says if you make a vow, you have to follow through. That's the law. Okay. What I'm telling you is, don't even do it, you guys. Don't even make a vow. Humans are just bad at vows. Especially vowing things to God. 
So what Jesus is getting at here is like, yeah, so you're going to make this promise to do something. You're like, by, by heaven, I, I swear on heaven that I'm going to do this thing. And he's like, do you have any authority over heaven? Really? Are you really putting that out there? Like, I swear by the earth. Like, yeah, what are you going to do if you don't do it? Like, are you going to give the earth to some? Like, how does that? That's just foolishness. Jesus is pointing out like, hey, when we swear by these things, you know what we're really doing? We're pretending that we have some sort of a power over them, some sort of ownership or power over these things by which we're swearing upon. Okay, where you say, I swear on my life that I'm going to do this. And they would say, I swear by heaven I'm going to do this. Like, you don't even own that. It belongs to God. How can you even say that? Or it just says, like, we have power at all in ourselves to even do it. Forget the vow. Just say, like, I have so much agency and power that I can fulfill this, and I'm so confident that I'm going to swear by the city of Jerusalem itself. I mean, the truth is we don't have that level of power or agency in ourselves as humans. We don't. We're weak. So putting this out here is just foolish and prideful. Here are some examples of some vows that we find in the Bible and show how foolish this is. Peter is a great example. Peter, Jesus' disciple, makes some vows to Jesus during his ministry. One of them was, I won't let you die. Jesus just got done saying, like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die there for you. And Peter's like, no, you're not. I won't let it happen. You hear the vow language here? I won't let it happen. And then later, I will never betray you. This is my vow. Never. I mean, also, Peter, hours later, he vowed, I don't know Jesus. So, you know, you have that. Just a depiction of the weakness of this, right? I will never betray you. I swear I won't. I swear I don't even know who you are. Like, how quickly we spin, right? How weak these vows can be. And here, the assassin's vow. How foolish does this sound? Put it this way. We will keep slash break the law or die. What kind of vow is that? It's just foolishness. We will not eat or drink until we do the opposite of what God has in plan. It's like, what does it mean? How? How are you going to do that? Weakness. The weakness of vows. Both of these examples here are saying this. I will derail the plans of God himself in favor of my own designs. And I'm doing the right thing when I do that. Peter's saying, right? I won't let Jesus die. That's not, that's not what's going to happen. The right thing is for him to live on and become the king. I will make sure Paul is dead and I'm doing the right thing. So lest you, lest you come back and say you shouldn't commit murder, no, 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 no. I've already, I've already thought it through. I'm doing the right thing. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, the essence of sin itself right here. I will derail the plans of God himself in favor of my own designs and I'm doing the right thing. Just echoes of the fall in the Garden of Eden coming through, echoing in our own hearts, my heart, your heart today. I'm doing the right thing by derailing the plans of God in favor of my own. My designs, not God's designs. My righteousness, not God's righteousness. My desire is for myself, not Christ's for me. I will do it. I will change my own destiny. I'm in charge of it. And I'm doing the right thing. But the reality is, in these two examples here, God's plan was the opposite in both of these cases. And the people making these vows don't fulfill them, and they're left looking foolish in the end. And Peter is restored. God forgives that. Jesus forgives that and brings him back. 
We don't know how the assassin story ends. I mean, I assume it ends with them secretly eating at home without their friends knowing about it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. Foolishness. Our vows are foolish. We don't have that agency. We are not that strong. We are showing pride when we make these kinds of vows. So who is able to make a vow and actually follow through? Let's talk about God's vow. Not the assassin's vow, not Peter's vow. Let's talk about God's vow. We find this in Ezekiel 36. Listen to what God says through through the prophet Ezekiel. Talking to us, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. That's a good vow. I love that. That should give us chills. It's like, look, this is the thing that God says he will do. And he doesn't have to swear by Jerusalem at the end. He says, I'm the Lord, I've spoken, and I'll do it. That's all you need to know. God will do it. And the great thing is that he has done it. At the cross, he has done it. And Jesus himself kind of makes a vow as well at the Last Supper shadowing this assassin's vow about fasting. He says to his disciples, takes a drink of wine from his wine glass and sets it down and says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He says, this is my last glass of wine that I'm going to have on this earth. And that's true. Later that night, he was crucified and died. The next glass of wine is in his Father's kingdom. He vowed it, he did it. That's the power of the vow that God has. The only being who can truly vow something, what did he vow? He vowed to die for his people. That's the vow. He says, I will do it. And he did. We're going to have more on that later on. So let's talk now about this witness. Somebody heard about this plot. Somebody was in the room. Probably shouldn't have been there, but he was. We don't know the details, but he was there and he heard everything. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Okay? So probably a young man. We don't know how old he was, but probably young. Um, This is kind of alluded to because when he gets to the tribune, it says the tribune kind of takes him by the hand, like pulls him aside. So I'm kind of picturing like a young, sort of scared kid where he's like, here, come. I'll take you aside. You can tell me one-to-one. Don't need to be scared. So maybe a teenager, but for sure a a younger person. Hears about these attacks, and uh, suddenly this cabal of 40 assassins is just neutralized by the word of a single young kid who heard the news. So what we're seeing here amounts to a miracle of God. Not a flashy miracle, but a miracle. It's not, you know, just, oh, he happened to be in the right place, right time. It was a pretty lucky break, and he had the courage to go say something. And it's not like, you know, Paul's nephew got a vision that said, they're going to kill Paul. Here's the story. Go tell. He was just, he was literally there. But God's fingerprints are all over this. This is one of these kind of everyday miracles where God is putting people in the right place to do the things that need to be done so that the story of the gospel that God is writing can continue. 
So Paul is saved. A young family member catches wind of the plot. He goes and tells Paul. So first of all, he gets, he gets access. So the Romans are letting, letting people talk to Paul. He hears all the details of the plot, not just like there's something going down, but like here's exactly what's going to happen, how many guys, they already talked to these people, that, you know, they've already made this oath. He knows the whole story. Tells Paul, then he tells a centurion, then he tells a tribune, and then the tribune tells the governor of the whole province via a letter what's going on. So this kid's testimony runs up the chain of command all the way to the top, and it gives Paul this massive Roman escort out of town in the middle of the night so he doesn't get killed. It's pretty fantastic. It's a, it's a miracle for sure. And I mean, a little bit of a sidebar, but the, the structure of how this plays out is kind of a mini depiction uh, of the spread of the gospel itself, right? You know, one person telling the news to someone else who tells it to someone else until it gets bigger and bigger. It's going all the way to a different part of the country. And in the end, someone is saved. You see this physical depiction of the spread of the good news of the gospel. And then these grandiose vows come to nothing. God is using a small, weak child to shame 40 Jewish assassins, you know, ready ready to act on this big conspiracy theory. This young person brings the words that save a life. And it's pretty unlikely, right, that he was in that place, that he was able to access Paul, that he wasn't too scared to tell the story. It's unlikely. And it's that unlikely piece that really screams the gospel. And we talk about this a lot at Hiawatha. If you've been around, um, you've heard it. If you haven't, you will now. (laughs) We talk a lot about how salvation comes in a lot of times from a very unlikely person or an unlikely source. And God delights in doing that Throughout the Bible, I'm going to put a few examples up here just, just to illustrate this without going too deep into these. In the book of Genesis, you got Joseph. He's a discarded brother who becomes a slave in a foreign country, but is elevated to, to like second in command of this area and eventually ends up saving his whole family from a famine. Totally unlikely that he would survive that long or get to that place, but he did. How about Moses? Moses was... Um, a rebellious young person who killed an Egyptian soldier, murdered him, was really bad at talking, and then God put him in charge of the whole nation and moved them out of Egypt and saved them, saved the whole people group. How about Esther? Esther was a young Jewish girl in a different country who got married off to the king just because she was pretty, but she used her access and her courage to speak up when a plot, another plot, was hatched to like kill all, the, kill all the Israelites. She spoke up and got them saved. Unlikely, but it happened. Obviously, David, young David, kid with a slingshot. Nobody else wanted to go out on the battlefield. He goes out with a slingshot and takes down the giant and ends up winning that whole battle, saving his people from uh, annihilation at the hands of the Philistines. Or Mary, an unmarried, pregnant teenage girl, brings Jesus, the Savior, into the world. Unlikely, but she was chosen. This happened. Or Paul himself. Paul was an anti-Christian religious extremist. Paul was like the Jewish assassins before. Go find the heretics who are believing this stuff and put them in jail or kill them if you have to. Paul did that. But God turned his life around and turned him into a preacher and a church planner and he preached to the world. He's going to preach in Rome for crying out loud. The epicenter of all the ancient culture at the time. 
unlikely people. God is using them. He's putting them in the places that they need to be and equipping them to do this saving work for the people that are around them. Why does God continue to do it this way? What's he trying to tell us about the nature of the gospel, the nature of salvation, by doing it this way with unlikely people? Well, we can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing this, and this is what he says. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, like Paul's nephew in the world, to shame the strong, like these assassins. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God delights in unlikely means of salvation. He delights in elevating weak people who have no business being in these positions to these positions and doing what needs to be done because he does not want us to think, wow, yeah, I mean, I was the king and I was the strongest and I did it and I guess I'm awesome. Instead, God is saying like, look at, look at a kid named David, this punk kid with a slingshot who took down a giant. That's what it's like. That's what salvation is like. Not you doing it, but me doing it. No boasting in the presence of God. So you see, this miracle is just another example of how God is the one doing the saving. God is the one writing this story, putting people in the places that they need to be, putting Paul's nephew in the room somehow to hear the whole plot and run it up the chain of command to the Roman governor. And then, I mean, talk about unlikely, Rome, the huge empire that doesn't actually care about Jewish affairs at all, would rather stay out of it as long as they're keeping the peace. Oh, the same government that said, yeah, I guess we'll just let this innocent guy, Jesus, be crucified for really no reason because I guess we care more about what the Jewish people think. All of a sudden, they're throwing hundreds of soldiers and resources to get Paul out of town in the middle of the night. Unlikely, but it happened. So Paul's mirroring Jesus' journey to Jerusalem that we've been talking about these next few weeks, it's taken a major twist because now Paul's not going to get killed. Now he's going to survive. Now he's going to move on. And Paul's nephew is kind of like an anti-Judas in this story. Whereas Judas participated in a plot to get Jesus arrested and killed, made sure it happened, the nephew heard about the plot and told Paul about it and got him out of town. He blew their cover. You see how this twist is starting to happen where Paul's going to make a turn out of Jerusalem alive. And it's because Paul's been given this plot armor, you guys. This simply isn't the end of his story. He has a bunch more stuff that God wants him to do. So this big twist about getting Paul out of here safely is going to set up the next part of this book. And it's going to get Paul all the way to Rome, which is where God said he would be. So the third part of this passage now is about how Paul himself is now bulletproof. He's going to survive. Nothing's going to touch him now because God has said, your story does not end in Jerusalem. You are going to Rome. Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. 
So I've got a map. They start down here in Jerusalem. Middle of the night, this whole group of soldiers with Paul, they go up here to Antipatris, which is basically halfway, sleep a little bit, get up the next morning. Some of the soldiers head back. The rest of them stay with Paul on horseback and go all the way up here to this coastal city uh, of Caesarea. So Caesarea, as you might guess from the name, has Caesar in it, is like the administrative center of the Roman Empire in this Judean region. So it's where all the, all the bigwigs are, including Felix. He's like the governor of the area, whereas the tribune is kind of the local, the local guy in Jerusalem. So it's a 70-mile journey, give or take, all the way from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So they went about halfway and then split up and the rest of them went on. So again, Paul's out. He's out of Jerusalem. He's actually never coming back to Jerusalem. He's going to end up in Rome eventually. We're going to see that in coming weeks as we finish off this book and this series. But God's mission for Paul is involving this longer life, a bigger audience, the city of Rome itself, and God's going to bring him there. That's the goal. God has already said that. He appeared to Paul at night and he said, you will live, in, you will live to see Rome. So until then, Paul's bulletproof. He's not worried. He shouldn't be. He can live fearlessly in the calling that he has. Now when I say fearlessly, I don't mean recklessly. Like he can you know, say, hey soldiers, just give me a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like, skip through town in Jerusalem because they can't hurt me. I already know. I'm just going to taunt them and let them try. That's recklessness. So he's not doing that, but he's fearless in the sense that he says, I'm not really worried anymore about getting killed in Jerusalem because I know that I am going to make it to Rome. That is my mission. So as we've been comparing Paul and Jesus, now is our chance to do a little bit of contrasting as well. Because when Jesus made it to Jerusalem, he didn't leave. That was it. He went there. He died on the cross. He rose again but he died in Jerusalem. Paul does not. For Jesus, his mission was always the cross. Always. That was his goal. No one was going to knock him off that course. And Jesus, too, was protecting himself up until that goal was at hand, making sure that it didn't happen before he got to the cross. He didn't want to die in some other way. The plan was the cross. And we can see Jesus' mission was the cross because of his early ministry, some of the things that he did that are sometimes maybe a little bit confusing or just seem weird. Like, I don't have all of the text here, but I have the references if you want them. Matthew 9, Jesus heals two blind men and says, don't tell anybody that I healed you. Try to keep that to yourself. Same thing in Mark chapter 1. He heals a leper and says, don't tell anyone that I healed you. And the leper immediately goes and tells everyone, yes, I know. But Jesus is saying, hey, keep, keep, this, keep this small. Keep this to yourself. I'm out operating in the countryside, not in the big cities. Keep this to yourself. He doesn't want to get too famous too quickly. He doesn't want the religious leaders coming out and trying to kill him now. He has other things to do and he wants the cross. That's, the, that's his mission. Okay? And he even miraculously avoids being killed early on in his ministry. In Luke 4, after he's done preaching, the crowd gets so angry that they drag him outside town, they bring him to the edge of a cliff, and they're going to throw him off the cliff. And then the verses say, like, he walked away. <laughs> Talk about plot armor. Like, how, but how did he walk away? How did he not get thrown off a cliff? And in John 10, it says, like, 
he made them so mad, these religious leaders, that they were going to arrest him. So they like, went to grab him, and it, it even says like, it, he slipped through their fingers. Like, again, he's a grown man. Like, how? How is this happening? But Jesus is protecting himself until the cross. And then finally, we see that there is a plot to kill him. The religious, religious leaders eventually say, okay, we're done messing around. Let's make a plan to get this done. Again, echoes of these assassins, right? And we're going to get this done when he comes to Jerusalem. And they start saying, like, let's do it. Let's do it after the feast. Or let's, you know, they're trying to make these plans. They finally do get him when Judas uh, assists them with, with orchestrating this plan. But by then, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's ready. The cross is right there. The cross was the plan from the start for Jesus. He came to earth specifically to die on the cross in that way. He saved, he saved himself from harm up until that point. Because like Romans 5 says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So when we read that, we need to say, this was not an accident. This wasn't a, oh, Jesus was supposed to live one more year and do more things. But, ah, they got him early. No, no, no. This is Jesus saying, I will not be knocked off course to the cross until I'm there. Nothing's going to stop that. This is the mission. This is the plan. This is not an accident. So the point is, God is in complete control of Jesus' story, just like he's in complete control of Paul's story, but they're different. They're different at this point. Okay? Look at this. Here's Paul. Paul is human, but God makes him bulletproof for a time to complete this mission that he has to go to Rome. Jesus, God incarnate, divine, invincible, is made vulnerable to complete his mission. It says in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he took the form of a servant to do this. Made vulnerable. Paul, an actual sinner with crimes on his record. I mean, think about that. Like I was saying, the Romans' big job is to keep the peace, but they let him operate in the early parts of Acts, dragging people, putting them in jail, making sure they got killed, watching while Stephen got stoned. The Romans aren't down for that kind of thing, but they let that go. Paul's got all these sins on his record. Jesus, completely sinless, truly innocent. How do the Romans treat him? Oh, beat him within an inch of his life until he didn't look human, and then nail him naked on a cross to die in public in shame. Really different. Paul, Spared from death in Jerusalem. Spared from the plot. Jesus, delivered to death in Jerusalem. Delivered over to the people making the plot and killed. Paul accomplished his mission. Jesus accomplished his mission. You see how God is using these things, complete control over these situations. No accidents. They are accomplishing the missions that God has for them. And at the cross, God withdraws that sense of invulnerability from Jesus, withdraws the plot armor from Jesus and allows this to happen because that was the mission. And if that sounds crazy to you, it is. Sometimes we refer to this as the scandal of grace. It's scandalous to think that convicted sinners are protected while a sinless Jesus dies. That is a scandalous thought, but it is true. 
Ruined sinners like us are given protection from the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God against our sin. We are protected from that and the Holy Son of God has the wrath poured on him. The sacred head of Jesus Christ was wounded and killed while we went free. It's scandalous. Do you see the exchange that's taking place here? This exchange? Do you see the love and the care that God has for us while making atonement for our sins? There's this obvious physical dimension of Paul literally lives and goes on and lives more more months and years of his life and Jesus' life ended there. There's that physical piece to it for this case. But more importantly is this spiritual and theological dimension that this suggests for us that we sinners can put on Christ, the Bible says. We can put on the man, Jesus Christ. His holiness placed upon us. Saved. We are saved from the punishment of the sins that we actually committed. We really did. We really are. The armor of Jesus Christ, his sinless nature that protected him from God's wrath, he takes it off and he puts it on us because of his shed blood. The wrath does not harm us when we are in Christ. We have put on Christ. And because of that, because of that truth, we have been given abundant life. John 10, Jesus says, hey, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, I lay down my life to give you life. I lay down my armor against the wrath of God to give it to you so that you can live. Not just live, live abundantly because of the fact that we have put on Christ. We can live abundantly. He removes the holiness, the armor from himself at the cross to take that penalty for our sin and puts it on us to give us a fearless and abundant life in Christ. Fearless, like Paul who says, I'm bulletproof until God accomplishes his mission. What do I care what they have planned? I don't. Psalm 118. The psalmist writes this, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. Sounds like Paul in prison, right? The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord set us free. Not just free from like a prison like Paul, Free from sin, free from death, free from the wrath of God. If that's the reality, and we can say the Lord is on my side, I don't need to be afraid of anything, let alone what man's plots might be against me. We can live in that reality that we are able to put on Christ. We can call on the Lord. He can save us from our sins. He will, he has. What can man do to us? We are part of this story. We are part of God's beautiful story of amazing grace that is given to us. Whether in life, like Paul, continuing abundant life, or in death, like Christ, God's gospel story is perfect, no matter what our circumstances are. And nothing can separate us 
from his love. That's the reality. That we can put on Christ. So as we leave, I've got three things just to recap what we've talked about. First of all, remember, God makes the ultimate vow. We don't need to be making vows. God makes the ultimate vow. And what is his vow? He says, I vow to save my people. He says in Ezekiel, I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Jesus saying, I'm going to set this wine glass down. Next time I drink it, we'll be in victory. I'm going to the cross right now, and he did. God makes the ultimate vow. The creator of the universe chose to vow to save weak people like us. The creator of the universe became weak, like Paul's nephew, to accomplish that goal and to save us. That's the vow. He's done it. It's over. So believe that. If you're a Christian, Christ has placed his armor upon you. He took the penalty for your sin himself and saved you. That's what he has done. We have been saved from the wrath of God if we are in Christ. If you're not a Christian yet, this is what it means. We can believe that today. We can have Christ put on us. We can have his spirit put inside us, like Ezekiel said again, right? I will put my spirit in them. He does that. So believe this gospel. Live abundantly in light of this gospel. Live fearlessly in light of this gospel. What can man do to us? We have been saved. The wrath of God was passed over us and put on Christ so that we can live an abundant life because the good shepherd laid his down for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the good news of your grace. Thank you for laying aside your invincible nature, for making yourself weak, for taking the cross, the sting of sin and death for us so that we can live. Jesus, I pray that you would work through us today to believe that more and more. I pray that you would turn our hearts towards you and away from ourselves, that you would remove these sinful predilections from our hearts that we would focus on you, the vow that you made to save us, and that you have done it. Thank you for your good grace towards us in the gospel. Amen.